Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Holy Hospitality, we're finishing a sermon series today. So if you're just joining us, um, we are closing this down. This is six weeks we've been in this series. Uh, next week, we're going to get into Jonah. We did Jonah in 2017, uh, but I think it's actually really pertinent for us today. So next week, we're going to dig into Jonah, maybe take a different look than you've ever taken. So I'd invite you back for that. Uh, today, we're going to finish Holy Hospitality by rejoining Jesus at a dinner party. Uh, he's been at a dinner party with friends. Uh, he's at a Pharisee's house. And... Um, So we're just going to kind of pick it up. He had healed a man on the Sabbath. This is sort of a weird contradiction. So he's with the rule-following religious people, Jesus is, and he's healed a man on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They kind of have an argument about that. Is that okay? Was that technically work? Are you violating the law? Who is this Jesus, and who does he think he is? They're they're troubled, really, by Jesus' lack of respect for the law, and there's this tension building in the room. Jesus presses them on humility, and someone, someone in the room, I think, um, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, you wouldn't anyway, but are there any conflict-averse people in the room? You're like, maybe, you know, people that are like, the fight breaks out, and you're like, I just kind of want to be in a different room, or you need to confront somebody on something, and you're like, yeah, it'll probably get it, work itself out, I'm not going to say anything. There's someone in the room as this tension is building, as I read through the story, who I think might have that conflict-averse gene that goes, uh, let me see if I can smooth this out, because this is not going the right direction. So we pick it up in Luke chapter 14, verse 15. It says, when one of those at the table with him heard this, all of this tension building around humility and healing, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast of the kingdom of God which is a, like a true thing, nice thing, good thing to say, but, but as you read through the kind of the narrative as it's building, what you hear is like, guys, can we just stop and like, let me say something that no one can disagree with so we can just move on and get past the awkwardness. What, what he's saying is essentially there's a kingdom of God in one day in the great distant future, we'll no longer be hungry, we'll no longer be sad. One day this is all going to be right. Right, Jesus? Right, Jesus? Jesus is eventually going to reply with a parable because, of course, Jesus will not answer him directly. He's going to say, yes, there is a kingdom feast coming, but it's not what you think. But before we get to that, Jesus' parable on the kingdom feast, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today, we have to revisit another feast. And so um, maybe you remember Jesus was at a wedding in Cana, and uh, they ran out of wine. Maybe think of a wedding reception you've been to. They're at a wedding reception and, and they run out of wine, but think of a wedding reception, the last one you went to. I went to one, you know, these barns they build now that are just like enormous barn structures, and then the wedding's at one side, and they go, everybody go outside for five minutes, and you come back in, and now there's tables everywhere. It's just one big wedding facility. Maybe that's where you were. Maybe you were outdoors somewhere. Maybe you're in a church. But when you're at a wedding reception, there's a certain air about it. Jesus is there with his mother at this wedding reception, some of his friends, so they must know the people. So it's not like a random wedding crashers kind of situation. Jesus and his mother know these people. And what happens at the wedding, as you've probably heard the story, is they, they run out of wine, which is a pretty serious faux pas. Jesus' mom says, listen, they're out of wine. And implied in that is, I know you can do something about this. 
some tension there too. You can almost hear the heartache when Mary says it, they're out of wine. This is wildly humiliating. I know you can help. Jesus then accomplishes his first miracle recorded in Scripture, where he changes water, he turns water into wine, water in these ceremonial washing uh, jars. The, The water he turns to wine was ritualistic water. It was water used for ceremonial cleansing. And I bring that up to say that when Jesus turned water into wine, he took what was ritual water and religious water, and he turned it into like like celebration juice, feast wine. And there's a picture there as we get started as to what Jesus is doing all through Scripture. Jesus is taking the things of religion and the things of ritual, and he's turning them into something different. He's upending the whole system on which it's built from from a place of, of... timidity and religiosity. Jesus is saying, no, no, there's a celebration to be had as the the kingdom of God shows up, everything changes. He's dismantling the structures that exist. Jesus arrives to turn religion into something better. I would argue, though, if you think about that miracle, it's probably pretty frivolous to the outsider. If you think about uh, the creator of the universe can do anything at all in that moment, can cure all disease. He turns water into wine for a wedding party in a remote outpost in the Middle East. Because he's, he's showing us something. It's a subversive sort of way to do what he's doing. It's a subversive sort of way to start getting into our hearts what he was here to do in the first place. He's dismantling a system of religion and ritual. He's dismantling the thing that we think we're supposed to be doing. And instead, he does something wholly different. You know, people um, who aren't Christian, if I asked you, what do they think about Christianity? What, what is the non what is the outsider, what is the person who's never followed Jesus, who has nothing to do with us, who's, what would that person say about what it means to be a Christian? It wouldn't be about celebration. They would say there's a lot of rules you have to follow. You got to keep your nose clean. You can't do this. You got to vote this way, or maybe you got to vote that way can't smile. That's not something you do. You're Christians. Definitely don't get caught with a drink in your hand. That's not okay. You got to volunteer at some vaguely depressing mission outpost in some far off country. You got to do that once or twice, I think. I think that's what Christianity is. This is the uh, reputation that your faith has in the world. Christianity is no fun. There's no joy. It's a suppressing of your urges and your joys and a suppressing of what the world thinks is fun. It's getting rid of all those things so you might have some reward. That's what the world thinks. Maybe you uh, remember becoming a Christian. In the 80s and the 90s, uh, maybe this still happens, I don't know how you would do it, but in the 80s and 90s when you became a Christian, it was very popular for people to burn their non-Christian cultural stuff like, like records and tapes and CDs eventually. People would smash them and burn them and Take your Bible, I'm not reading these books anymore. Nirvana, no way. And, you know, you replace it with Michael W. Smith, and then you're like, ah, I wish I had that Nirvana CD, you know. (laughs) It's not new in the 80s and 90s. That was what I watched people do, and yet that's not new. In 1966, John Lennon proclaimed that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. It did not go well. All over the country, disc jockeys, for some reason I can't quite understand, they would break 
Beatles records on air, which no one could see them, so they could have ripped anything, but they're sitting there breaking Beatles records. People were burning Beatles records. They protested outside. How dare the Beatles compare themselves to Jesus? These Christians responded to a culture by doing what? Getting rid of the fun things, the best things, the good art, the good music. Let's get rid of all that stuff. That's not what we're about. No good art, no fun songs, certainly no wine. The world looks at Christianity and says, we're out here partying on Saturday night while boring old Christians are headed to bed so they don't miss their sleepy church service with a hangover. Jesus' first miracle signs to the world that they've got it wrong. Not that Christians are out getting, you know, blackout drunk. That's not it. He's saying that the whole idea that Christianity is absent of the celebration is backwards. The Bible calls the miracles of Jesus signs, which is super important. Signs. What do signs do? They direct you. They point to something. The signs of Jesus point to the way of his kingdom. The signs of Jesus reveal the truth about what life is like with him. So when we see Jesus interacting with people, when we see signs and wonders, the signs aren't necessarily about the thing that's happening. Turning water into wine isn't about wine. It's a signpost that says, here is what it's like to live with Jesus. Here's what the kingdom of God is about. Jesus would say it's a feast with unlimited joy. There's no shortage of laughter or happiness. Life with me is the party where the best is yet to come. The best is served at the end. Regrets and sadness are no more. It's unexpected. It's unimaginable. It's utterly incredible. You want life with me is what that miracle is pointing to because it only gets better. So I would say if your experience of Jesus is more about rules to follow than life to share, you might not be following Jesus. Jesus is about inviting greater life, inviting greater celebration, inviting greater joy. And if you're living in the world where you're tamping all the joys of life down, and if it's more about the things you have to avoid than the life you get to enjoy, I think you're off. So we go back to the dinner party, and the one said, blessed is the one who eats at God's kingdom feast. And here's Jesus' response. Verse 16, we pick it up. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, and he invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master and the owner of the house, became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys, alleys of the town and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. So the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. And I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. Jesus says to the Pharisee who says, blessed are we who sit at the kingdom feast. Jesus says, you're half right. The kingdom feast is going to be great, but maybe not for who you think. In the parable, the host's invitation is really important. The invitation of the host says what? It says, come, everything is now ready. You ever been invited to a meal at somebody's house? You ever been invited to a dinner party? And you say, what can we bring? And the response was, nothing. 
That's not right. You can't do that. We were at somebody's house this, this weekend. We went to a, a dinner. There's three couples. We got invited. We said, what can we bring? The response was, nothing. I said, well, Steph, we can't bring nothing. It's not how this works. She goes, well, they said nothing. They have it all covered. So we pulled up at the same time as the other couple who's coming, who was also surely told, bring nothing. They got out of their car. We got out of our car. Wife of the other couple's carrying flowers. I brought a bottle of wine. <laughs> because we were told to bring nothing. But that's not acceptable. So you bring something. Why? There's something in us that doesn't like the idea of being invited into something that we didn't earn. There's something in us that doesn't like being invited to something that we didn't help contribute to. That feels off for us. For some people, it's because they're nice. For me, it might just be pride. That I feel like I need to contribute to this. I feel like I need to earn this. I feel like I need to, to buy some of the favor that's about to be bestowed on me. Maybe if I give them this wine, I won't feel guilty when I eat their nice food and drink their wine. It's a social contract we keep, but if you think about why we do it, it gets interesting. But the kingdom of God is not like that. It's not like a restaurant where you have to pay or a potluck where you have to bring your dish in order to qualify to eat the food. Those, th those are things that make us feel good. It makes us feel good to be able to pay the bill or bring the dish. It makes us feel good to bring the wine. It says, look what I can pay for. Look what I can afford. Look what I can contribute. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is something you cannot prepare for or afford. So if you, if you hear nothing else today, maybe this is what you need to hear. The kingdom of God cannot be bought or earned. It has to be received. Nothing you do, no good works, no great generosity, nothing you can do earns you your spot in the kingdom of God. It has to be received. I tried to illustrate this once uh, a couple of years ago. My family, we got to spend spring break in the very tropical location of Flint, Michigan. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Cancun, Bahamas, Panama City Beach, Flint. It's one of those early spring breaks too. So it was the middle of March, pretty dreary, pretty gray, a lot of bottled water. I can't decide if it's even a joke or not because we got a lot of, like, I wouldn't drink it. And I, they told me it's better. And I was like, but I don't, like, we had suitcases and bottles of water. Anyway, I got it in my heart to do a thing as we're, as we're in this vacation mode where um, we're there for a medical thing. So it's not like we were doing it because it was like, this is going to be, look how cool we are. We, we had to be there for a medical thing. So we're in this kind of like boring hotel in this boring suburb of boring Flint in boring gray Michigan, and it was just like, bleh. and everybody looked around like, this is our spring break. Enjoy it, guys. And so in the midst of that, we had one night where we had a little extra time, and I said, what we're going to do is we're going to drive 30 minutes to one of the fancy Detroit suburbs, and we went to Fogo de Chao for lunch. 
Like, as a late lunch, we said, let's go to Fogo de Chao. Fogo de Chao is a, a Brazilian steakhouse. The picture up there was of that, so we can put that back up. So in one of these white tablecloths, it's the steakhouse where the, the gauchos, the Brazilian guys, they, they're from Brazil in there, and they, over open fire, they cook these long spits of um, incredible meats. And they come to your table, and you have a little disc, and it's either green, and it says, yes, please, or you flip it over, and it says, um, no, thank you, and it's red. And that's how they know whether you want more meat. And they put their giant sword on your table and they saw the meat off of the skewer directly onto your plate and you just eat meat until you feel ready to pop. It's the best meal that um, a meat lover could ever have. They also have the best salad bar you'll ever have. They have the best, those breads in the middle are like there's some sort of cheese baked in there. I don't know how they do it. It's Brazilian cheese bread and the best desserts and the best sides. And the drinks are, they have this Brazilian soda and it's full of Guaraná, which apparently just makes you insane. And then they have good wine and everything is good. And it's sort of really expensive too. So, so what I had in my heart to do was I said, we're in Flint, Michigan for spring break. We drive to this medical facility. We would do a day's worth of assessments and whatnot. We drive back to the hotel. We look at each other. We go, where do you want to eat? And you pull up Yelp and it's like, you don't want to eat here. And you go, okay, maybe not. And that was the whole week. And so at one point we said, let's just go enjoy a feast. Let's celebrate that we're here. Let's celebrate that we're out. Let's celebrate we have life. Let's go do something. Let's have an experience. And we laughed. And we feasted. We had this incredible meal of fullness. And some would look at that and some would scoff at that and they would say, what a waste. Could have given that money to the poor. What if Habitat had that money? How much more could they have done with it? And yet it was... I think one of those moments in our family that we, we drive a stake into the ground and we said, we will not be people defined by our circumstances or by our trials and challenges. That in the midst of a medical thing, we said, let's go celebrate abundance. Let's go enjoy the overwhelm of God's provision and abundance in our lives. And it ran opposed to everything you're supposed to do when you spring break in Flint. What you're supposed to do is feel sort of self-pity and sort of bad for yourself and not drink the water and make a couple jokes and go home and be like, well, that was awful and I hope we never do it again. Instead, we think back on that week and we remember joy and celebration. It was the point. We were declaring in the midst of a, kind of a, a dreary week of, of medical uh, trial, we were saying life is joy and fullness. No matter where we are, no matter what we're going through, what we're going to choose is joy. We're going to choose abundance. We're going to choose experience and adventure. We're going to praise God for his, his provision in our lives. We're going to go and celebrate. And if, you know when they come to the table sometimes and at a restaurant, they'll say, are you guys celebrating anything today? You ever had that? And you feel tempted, if you're me, you feel a little tempted to be like, man, make something up, you get a free dessert. But you don't. You don't. You think about it. Have they come to the table that, that day and go, are you guys celebrating anything? Be like, yeah, we're spending spring break in Flint for a medical trial. Does that get a free dessert? They'd be like, maybe you shouldn't be here. Instead, we had a celebration feast of goodness and grace. Now imagine if on the way to having this meal, 
My wife says, let's stop at the convenience store so I can get some ring dings and a bottle of wine. Just so we bring something. You'd have gone, that's not how that works. Or, or when the bill comes, my kids go scrounging in their purse and they pull out dollar bills and a few coins and they go, can we help pay for this? I'd be insulted, to be honest. Dad, here's $4.12. Can we help pay for this? Be like, that doesn't, no, that doesn't help at all. That's actually insulting. It's, it's not even close. I, I was trying to do something for you. I'm trying to bless you. I'm trying to overwhelm you with goodness. I'm trying to show you abundance and give you an experience. And you're worried about how you're going to help me afford it? Trying to bring something to justify your inclusion at this table? See, Jesus is inviting us to a kingdom feast. Jesus is inviting us to the kingdom of heaven on earth. Pretty often we find ourselves scrambling around for pennies and ringdings trying to justify our inclusion at the table. Trying to show them that we, we do sort of earn it. I mean, I know it's grace and all, and I accept your free gift of grace, but also here's how I would have earned it had you let me because I'm pretty good now. And we try to show Jesus that we've earned all the things that he says you can't possibly earn it. And we go, but here, take these pennies and see how much I bring to the table. And he sort of swipes them off and he goes, nope, not how this works. Jesus, here's my rule following. Jesus, I, I did dry January. How did, how did that go? Jesus, did you see that in me? Did you see it? And Jesus goes, not interested. Hmm. Jesus, I save a lot. I give my 10%. I, I, I'm really nice to my neighbor, and he's not a nice person. And I'm nice to him. Jesus, did you see that? And Jesus goes, not the reason you're here. It's not why you're at the table. It's not how you got here. Nothing you've done includes you in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has to be received. And the longer we spend trying to earn it, the less time we spend in it. Because we don't understand the fullness of it. We don't actually enjoy the fullness of it. We're so busy. You're at the meal. You're at the $60 a person Brazilian steakhouse with your kids when you're supposed to be fretting about medical things in, in Flint, Michigan. And your kids don't enjoy the meal because they're busy worrying how you're going to pay the bill. Now, my kids didn't do that. They enjoyed that meal. But what a shame if they'd missed the whole thing because they were busy worrying how to pay for it. What a shame if you missed your whole life with Jesus because you spent your whole life worrying how you were going to justify your inclusion in his plan to begin with. And instead of enjoying the fullness of his spirit, instead of living out the fullness of his life, you spend every day fretting over which rule and justification you can complete so that you can show him that you're worthy of his grace. Not how it works. You can't earn it. You can't be worthy of it. You simply have to receive it. So we go back to the parable. What was told to those who'd been invited was, come, for everything is now ready. This is no surprise. They, they, they were in. They knew. You're ready. You, you've got your invitation. So the, these were not people who got invited on the spur of the moment. The, the host sends his servant out to say, come, everything is ready. The implication is you knew it was coming. We're ready for you now. Come on in. And then what do they say? Not so much. We're not ready. I know you're ready for us now, but we got other things to do. Tim Keller, I was reading uh, one of his sermons related to this passage, and he said this doesn't represent, we always think this represents unbelievers people who never made it to the feast. 
He says this represents believers, people who would, who would say Jesus is God's son, who would say Jesus was born, put on a cross, and resurrected. This, this represents people who have been invited into the kingdom feast, who have the knowledge of who Jesus is. They're on the guest list, but they can't make it because they can't quite give up the fullness of their life for the fullness of his. I got this field, I bought some oxen, I got married. He would say, Keller would say, these are believers today in the basic tenets of Christianity. Affirm who Jesus is, they pray in times of trouble, but they won't allow Jesus to affect their normal lives. Jesus can't quite get to the level where he's going to affect the normal life of a person. And they would say, I like all the Jesus stuff on the periphery. I like the idea that I have a a, a saving sort of mechanism if I get into trouble. I like the idea that maybe someone's looking out for me. I even like the idea of heaven. I think that could be real, and I like that idea, but I can't be bothered with that affecting my daily life here because I bought some oxen, or I have this field, or I got married. I'm a little too busy to do the whole Jesus and church thing all the way. So can he still be my savior without being my Lord? And Jesus goes, that's not how this works. Like, can I still have my own agenda and my own priorities, my own timeline? Can I get the associative benefits of Jesus without fully investing in Jesus? And the parable of Jesus says no. Jesus is clearly saying, I'm not additive to your life. I'm a replacement for your life. I'm not something you add. I'm something that replaces. I'm not vitamins and microgreens and fish oil. I don't make you slightly better if you take me. I'm not accessories that bring out your neckline if you put them on just right. I can't be put on like that. I can't be added like that. Either I'm Lord or I'm nothing to you. Either Jesus is Lord of his priorities and his agenda and his way, or if I'm still ultimately about me, if you are still ultimately about you and your priorities and your agenda and your way, what's the response of the master in the parable? He says, I tell you, not one of these invited will taste my banquet. Invited in to incredible richness and fullness, to incredible life, overwhelming abundance of life and joy, invited in and so busy with my own priorities and agenda that I never actually taste the fullness of what's on offer. So busy scrounging around for pennies in the bottom of a purse that I don't enjoy the meal in front of me. Luke 14 is an awesome chapter. It's crushing and beautiful all at once. He starts, Jesus does, by healing someone who the others thought was unworthy of healing. He finishes by inviting people to his feast that others would think were unworthy of the feast. And in the middle of it all, he challenges everyone to humility, to humble themselves. The only way you're going to get the benefits on either edge of the chapter is to do what he asks you to do in the middle, which is you have to humble yourself. You cannot think too highly of yourself. You cannot be too proud. You have to put your priorities aside. If you zoom out, you start to see the picture just in this one chapter of the life of Jesus on display that your inclusion in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your worthiness and everything to do with God's willingness. And that's beautiful. That's good news. That's the gospel coming home. That your inclusion in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with your worthiness. And the pride in us goes, but I want it to be about how good I am. And he goes, 
never we're going to make it anyway. Let me just take that off the table. Your inclusion has nothing to do with your worthiness and everything to do with his willingness. You are included and invited to partake in the feast of the kingdom of heaven, not because you did it right, but because Jesus did it right on your behalf. And that's the best news. Because then, not only do you have to stop fretting, you don't have to fret about whether I earn my way in anymore, now you get to release all of the things that you thought were keeping you out. The bad habits, the thoughts, the behaviors and actions. You can release them too because they won't keep you out if you'll simply receive the gift that he's given you. Jesus came to put those to death so he might give you life. Too many of us go through this life holding on to our old selves and our old life and our old priority and trying to add Jesus in in bits and pieces. Jesus says the kingdom has to be received and until you let go of your old self, until you let go of your rules and your rituals, until you let go of the depth of the trial and accept that I am the master of all of it, until you let go of your expectations and your justifications, until you let go of your agenda, until you let go of your life, you can never really grab hold of the life I'm offering because the kingdom of God is here and it is now. It's not something we wait for. It's not something that we only taste when we cross over into heaven. The kingdom of God is here and is available now. Eternity is already in session and the question you have to answer as you go about your daily life, as you go about your weeks and your months and your years ahead, the question you have to answer is whether you're there fully present, enjoying the feast of the kingdom with the Lord, Jesus Christ, or whether you are so busy trying to justify your way in, earn your way in, scurry around and clean up your messes that you never actually sit at the table he's invited you to in the first place. We all arrive unworthy, and yet we're fully welcomed when we show up simply requires that we bow before Jesus, that we declare him Lord, that we say, this is where life is found, not in me, but in him. Then we enter into the feast. Then we start to experience joy. Then we know what it's like in the times of trial to still have abundance. Then we know that in the hardest moments of life, it doesn't eliminate our sorrow. It, it puts a horizon of joy on it. You talk to people who follow Jesus who've been through the worst things. And you go, how do they go through it like that? How do they keep that countenance? How do they still have that joy? Where do they get that? It's not in them. It comes because they're at a feast that's greater than their circumstances. It comes because they're at a place that's greater than their current trial. A place of laughter and joy or comfort and peace. A place where hope doesn't fail us. And if I know anything about the lives in this room and the world that we inhabit, hope is sometimes hard to come by. At the feast of the kingdom of heaven, hope is never in short supply. And just when you think it's running out, they bring out a whole new supply. And the tables rejoice and they cheers and hope is still for all. It simply requires us to lay our lives down so we might take that life from Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that we don't have to earn our way into any of this. Lord, I would admit that uh, I probably spend too many days attempting to earn your favor and justify my inclusion in all of your goodness. Other days, uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I, I would confess that other days I spend chasing my priorities and my agenda instead of yours.
Lord, you know and I know those are not my days of fullness. Those are my days of striving. Father, the days of perfect fullness are the ones where you are on the throne and my life is about you. So God, my prayer uh, from myself, but then for this community, is that we might uh, observe our own lives. We could be honest with ourselves. We could approach your conviction. And we would know where our lives have yet to be turned over to you. We would know the places we're still trying to scurry around and justify grace. We would, we would identify those things that we might get rid of them once and for all so that we could be at your table. We can enjoy your feast. We can be in your presence, Lord, that we might know you personally, know your overflow of goodness and joy so that we might give it to others, invite others in, make room at the table. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his... Uh, words of mercy. Thank you for including us. We love you. Help us to enjoy the feast. Help us to approach the feast in the days to come. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.